This is an ABC podcast. Hello. It's very wonderful to be back with you for a new year of conversations, and I hope 2023 is treating you all well so far. A while back on the show, I spoke with Dr Andrew Browning. He's an obstetrician who has spent many years working in Ethiopia and Tanzania. And we thought Andrew's story was amazing. But he said, look, who you really need to speak to is my auntie Val. She's the one who got me to Africa. And and actually, she's the extraordinary person in the family. So at the end of last year, when she was on a rare trip back to Australia, I spoke with auntie Val. Valerie Browning first travelled to Ethiopia in 1973 as a young and very naive nurse. Back then, she didn't even know where the country was on the map. But for more than 30 years now, Val has lived among the Afar nomads in the northern deserts of Ethiopia. This is a part of the world plagued by famine and drought, which experiences some of the hottest temperatures on Earth. It's also been caught up in a brutal war between the Ethiopian government and a rebel group in the north, the Tigray People's Liberation Front. But for Val, it's home. She's married to an Afar elder, Ismail, and together they run an organisation working to improve literacy and maternal and child health. They've trained more than 1,000 local health workers and birth attendants and have set up the region's only maternity hospital, one named after Val's mother, Barbara May. Hi, Val. Hi, how are you? I'm very well and very happy to be speaking with you because you're back in, a, in Australia at the moment. How does life here look through your eyes? Um, it looks very strange, actually. You're still living with COVID. We live with something else. We worry about lots of other things. And we never did worry about COVID very much. And... Yeah, you, you you have different issues, but I actually, although I'm an Australian, carrying an Australian passport, uh, been there, as you say, 33 years, I, am, I, I know I am much more content in that environment than this. You're, you've become far too complicated, far too entrenched in, in technology, and I can't do it, I don't think. You've made your life, as you say, Val, in a a part of the world that few Australians know much about. And one of the things we don't know about is the war that's been happening in Ethiopia beginning in in 2020. What's the situation at the moment with the conflict? Well, it's meant to be that we are under a peace agreement which was signed November 3 in uh, Pretoria in South Africa. But it's tentative and tense because... As, as during the war, rumours persist and propaganda goes on, uh, it is said in some corners the Tigray People's Liberation Front is regrouping. It's hard to understand for us that they can jump from what they were almost to the day killing people, the next day having a peace agreement. We can't understand that really well. Up until October 20, they were killing people. So, I mean, all of a sudden, here we are, November, zoom, we're in a peace agreement. People wish and hope and pray that the peace will hold. That's exactly what we want. But uh, the devastation's been enormous. Uh, 
and people have lost enormous numbers of people. Thousands upon thousands have lost their livelihood because the TPLF deliberately destroyed it. You were raised in Armidale, Val. In your home growing up, was there much discussion of the wider world, of the kinds of lives that people were leading in, in other places? Well, I come from a very uh, traditional conservative background. I was born in southern England, brought up very well to be a, a polite, well-ordered person. But I think in the middle of the family, I slipped a wee bit, just a wee bit. Um, and yes, I mean, we lived in northern New South Wales. I remember my father took up a position in Nundal. There was an Aboriginal community there. And he hardly knew them. What what kind of values were you raised with? When you say a con, you know well, a traditional conservative family, what values were important? In we your were family? raised on Christian values. We went to church every Sunday. Uh, we stood up for the Queen. Um, we yeah, I was supposed to be studying, 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 but Why I like to uh, no, not really <laughs> hard. No, no, no. I remember my youngest sister, just younger than me, saying, oh, she's under the bedclothes again. She's taken food inside the bed and she's playing under the bedclothes. And my sister be reading books and being very serious and I was making some game up for myself. Well, what did you want to do after you left school? You left school in year 10. What was your plan? Well, I didn't want to leave at grade 10, but it, my father had eight children and I was out at the age of... Uh, 16, just going on 17, onto a train to go to Sydney. And I managed to get into Campbelltown Children's Hospital to study nursing. And I was told I was the youngest nurse that had ever been recruited. Uh, and basically, I didn't want to be a nurse. My mother told me, be a nurse, my dear, be brave. Um, I wanted to continue my school. I thought I might do high and lofty things like my friends, but no, didn't work out that way. And that was because the family needed you to be earning your own money by that age with such a big family. Yes, yes. and also I don't think they thought, I, well, I wasn't very studious. I don't think so, no. So you become this very young nurse, a, a graduate uh, down in Sydney. What led you to, to get on a plane to Ethiopia? Well, not me, really. It was my friend Rowan, who we are still friends, believe it or not, after all these years. Uh, she came one day and she said, um, by the way, she said, we're going to flat together in Ethiopia. I said, you've been <laughs> drinking. No, no, no. Come on, come to some senses. Ethiopia, where's that? Um, anyway, she said, no. It's, she said, I've signed you up. You and I are going to be the Australian medical team for the famine in Ethiopia. I said, you have been, really. I said, there's a thing called liability and you can't sign me up to anything. So we went on her motorbike to Summer Hill to try and get the thing uh, negated. That's what I wanted. And the guy says, well, I've booked the ticket. You'll be gone in 10 days. So you go and have a yellow fever injection. So that was it, you know. I, and then I rang up another friend she was a geography teacher. I said, you must have an atlas. Look it up and tell me the name of the capital of 
Ethiopia because I guess the plan lane lands there and I better look smart as if I know the name of the capital. <laughs> so she told me Addis Ababa. I practised that one uh, and off I went. I mean, a totally, totally, you could say, illiterate Western person. With I, I, We sat on the plane, Rowan says to me, you know the people over there are black? I said, don't be so silly. She said, yes, it's serious. It's serious. They are, are black. Are you serious? You I were said, that naive? No. I said, then we wash black bodies? We've been washing white bodies all this time? This can't be true. I was just completely... You no, know, I didn't know what I was going for, where I was going. I had no, not the faintest idea. I thought I was going to protect her because I thought, she's doing something stupid. She's a friend. I mean, could I live with myself if my friend got hurt and I wasn't the mighty one to... Help her. So I thought I was going to help her. She was 23, me 22. What greeted you when you arrived at the airport in Addis Ababa? Well, we were greeted by some officious Canadians who told us that basically we had to go to a camping store, pick up camping equipment, jump on a bus the next morning and go to the famine area. I said, no, 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 there's been a big mistake. You know, they do make mistakes these days. I said, you know, we are going to clean all the metal, including bedpans in the main hospital in Addis Ababa, so you can send the nurses to the famine area. We will stay here. And they said, no, 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 don't be so... No, they said, this is bad talking. You, you will be on the bus in the morning. And so Rowan burst out crying. I said, I tell you what, I just looked up the word malaria in a dictionary and that's as good as it goes. I don't know a thing about it. He said, if that's a joke, it is not funny. So uh, after that, we were loaded with medicines, with donkeys, and we walked down the escarpment down to the Afar lowland. We went down to what the Amharas called Gugubdu from Alamata. It's Yallo in Afar. And we started a medical uh, sort of camp there where very highly malnourished people were. It was <laughs> really crazy, what, really crazy. What were some of the, the sites that you encountered in terms of that fam famine, which must have been so confronting as you described this well, I mean, very naive young woman from Australia, I mean, confronting for anybody, but what, what things were you seeing there as the consequences well, of that famine? I had gone with an Australian mission group called Sudan Interior Mission, S-I-M, but in Alamata was Save the Children, and they had constructed like a high, a very high chicken netted uh, cage. It was like a cage. Inside were all the starving people. And every day, eight people had to push in a huge round cauldron of gluey porridge, push it in into the cage for these hungry people to eat. And they just grabbed out of the, um, the big cooked up cauldron, and when they'd finished, then other people had to go back in and drag out the bodies of the people who had died that night. And, yeah, I mean, that really blew my little brain. I was, a, yes, I was studying in Sydney with Mars bars in shops, ice cream, whatever you do, you just eat and, yeah, enjoy yourself and hear these people. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe my, I was really, ah. Oh, I don't, I really don't understand this at all. What kind of help could you and, and Rowena offer? Well, we were given medicine. 
and we were supposed to be treating them. And we had two translators. They were people who had come from Asmara University. The university was shut because all the country was in uproar against Haile Selassie at the time. That's how long it, long ago it was, 73, 74. So um, we were asking our translators, when you were sick, how did you feel? Headache, fever, what? What did your mother do for you? What did you get? I, we didn't know. I worked, <laughs> I worked out malaria treatment, believe it or not, by um, listening to people, how many tablets they ate a day. I did that. Mm. We had no idea. This is, I mean, how ridiculous. Two young 22, 23-year-olds, no training in tropical medicine, and here we go, we're in charge. Uh, and these guys who are translators could have done a much better job than us. Um, and other than that, yes, there was malnutrition. I remember the first encamp we did in this place called Gugubdu or Yallo in one day, starting from 12 midday going into the night. One mother brought three of her children malnourished to us and each of the children died with us mm. that day. And that was also, for me, a stunning thing, to think of a mother losing three of her children in one day from hunger, and she is hopelessly... She doesn't know what to do. Mm. She was unable to help them. So when you came back to Australia after that first experience, Val, did it feel like you'd been on another planet or, or something? I mean, how could you square these two realities of, of well, the life that you knew in Sydney and, and this extremity of this suffering and death and despair in, in Ethiopia? What, I, what burned inside me was the injustice that, you know, here I was as a 22-year-old with the Mars bars and whatever I felt like, ice cream, whatever. I ate all day long. I mean, Australians are food grazers, really. And then other people who would have eaten the leg of a chair if they could, dying of starvation. I couldn't work that one. For me, in my mind, there must be something, somebody or some system responsible. So um, I wanted to see an answer to that. When I came back to Australia, all I did was contact every organisation I could find. Um, then, of course, no digital communication, no nothing, but I looked up all sorts of uh, directories and all sorts of things, contacted embassies, contacted uh, International Red Cross, Content. I said, let me go back. I can't stay here. No, no, I must go back and work properly. Really hard I must work because this is not correct. There's something gone wrong here. It's injustice that drives my brain even today to think that uh, as humans, the world doesn't treat us the same. No. What did your family and friends back in Australia think about this, this passion that was inside of you? Well, when I landed, I talked like a monkey, like I'm talking now, talk, 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 and I couldn't stop talking. And some of my friends, two of my very best friends, literally cut off from me because I, all I could do was talk about what I'd seen, what I'd done and what I felt like. Mm. And from then onwards, I became like a bit of a Western nomad. I, I was from then onwards... 
moving from Australia back to the Horn of Africa, run out of money, go back, make money, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, I think my family were in despair, especially my mother. Her comment one day was that, you know, I had such wonderful brothers and sisters. Why didn't I take an example from them? They'd settled, they had houses, they'd married, they had children, and still I was like a, a bird wandering around, yeah. In 1986, Val, you were in Djibouti, right on the northeast coast of the Horn of Africa, where a, a refugee crisis was unfolding. How were you telling the outside world about what was going on? I put myself, audacious as I was, uh, into Somalia in the early 1980s, and I worked freelance, not a penny did I earn from them, but from your sister organisation, the BBC in London, and I worked for Focus on Africa. Uh, I think Focus on Africa is now a television show, but it, in those days it was purely radio, and we used to have Telegram, bang out a typewriter in Mogadishu, I get another report of the number of refugees who'd entered. I travelled the country by bus, by foot, by whatever, describing the refugee camps, giving reports to the BBC. Um, how how so, dangerous did things get for you in that period? Were there were there times oh, where... Oh, well, I, I, this is the funny thing. I think I have a very strange nervous system. I don't have any fear at all. Danger is not... Danger, to me, shows interest. Why Why is it there? I want to know. I walked into the Ethiopia from the Somali side with people called the Ogaden National Liberation Front. I did that to try and get a story in there. In 86, which is the date you mentioned, mm. I'd gone into Djibouti to try and get another story from the other side, from the Hadige Highlands, because I had reported that a 1,000 refugees were crossing daily through Togwachali in northern Somalia into Somalia, and the Ethiopian side was disputing it, saying that I had put forward a bunch of lies to the BBC, and so I was trying to uh, rectify that report when I was in Djibouti. Yeah. One day there, you were were sick, you were unwell, standing, I think, in the rain, lost. What happened? That was in Djibouti, trying to get a visa to go to the Harage Highlands. I, I wanted to get on the train from Djibouti into Utopia, but I needed to go to the embassy, and I couldn't find the embassy. I had an enormous... I thought I might have an ovarian cyst or something. I had a huge pain in my stomach and I could hardly hold myself up. And I'm standing in the rain thinking, my goodness, I don't know the embassy. I've left my passport in the airport because I, uh, the man said, oh, you're too weak, you're too sick, you better go and get a doctor. Um, I really was a bit bewildered and this guy pokes his face out from the back of a bus and he said, do you want help? And yeah, I said, yes, I do, I want help. Uh, and so um, he said, just wait, I'm doing another round with this bus, stay there and uh, I'll pick you up. So, <laughs> yeah, so I was picked up and here I am. And, and yes. who was this, this fellow? This fellow is my current husband, Ismail. So at 86 you met him as you're standing there lost and bewildered and unwell and he's in the bus. Where did he take you when he picked you up? Um, Ismail said he was going up north 
to visit friends, but he gave, he put me in his relative's house. The relatives were very nice. They gave me tea. They gave me something else. I don't know what I drank, but I felt better. I had a bit of a sleep, and I was better. Uh, and then they, I realised that my mission had utterly failed, and I had to get back into Somalia because I really had no permission to stay in Djibouti. So um, back I went to uh, Somalia, and then three years later I thought, this was a nice family, how nice they were to me. <laughs> um, i better go and say thank you. And then uh, Ismail turns up, he says, why don't we get married? I said, I don't know why, <laughs> and I've no idea. So anyway... Wait a minute, wait thought, a minute, well, Val, that's a I mean, surprise I was too, question. I mean, look, <laughs> I'd been having a hoot of a life all my time, running to and fro, and the, you, I didn't tell you about the women's hospital in Melbourne. They were too nice. Every time I came back to Melbourne, to Australia, they re-employed me. I don't know why, but I was working in the intensive care, newborn intensive care unit in, in the women's hospital in Melbourne, and they re-employed me every time. They said, oh, no, you're back. Come on, get in. No, and this was great. I had friends all over the so place. So you're living the free life, doing what you yes. want, where you want. Why did he say yes to this to this man? I thought, well, give it a go. I mean, I had no idea, never thought about it. I wasn't really interested in children, husband, or that sort of thing. I was having too much of a good time. I had friends all over the place. I still had heaps of friends in the Sudan, and they were great to me. I could get into the Sudan without a visa easily, just talking my rubbish Arabic in the airport and having a, another cup of tea with the, the immigration people, I pass them my passport and I say, stamp here. What was it about Ismail that made you say yes? I thought, well, give it a chance. I mean, what am I doing? I, I was thinking of staying in one place, actually. I was thinking about that. I really wasn't thinking about him very much. <laughs> so there you go. Um, and now... I'm really staying in one place. I hardly know Australia. I just came two days ago and I'm in a mess. I really, you should have seen me in Tullamarine this morning. I was a real giggled up so, mess. So what kind of change did getting married mean for the way you were living your life? Well, it mean, meant an end to freedom. So if I've got listeners who are saying, shall I get married, shall I not? Well, think about it, my dear, because... You no longer are freelance. You have a boss, you know? And after two, three years of marriage, I say to Ismail, hey, you know, all my friends are waiting for me in Sudan. I'll, I'll just go and visit them. I'll be back in a couple of months. He said, I beg your pardon. Where do you think you're going? I said, Sudan. Don't worry about it. I've got friends. I get in and out as I like. It's not a problem. I know them. He said, you're going nowhere, you stay in the house, don't move. Ah! Oh. I said, really? How is that? So I really hadn't reckoned it out at all. No, uh, and so, yeah, so here I am, 33 years into the marriage. Can you believe that? I think that's something. Uh, and, yeah, the, he's, a great, he's a great man. We have great fun. And he's a great thinker and a great... His passion for the AFA, his passion that the AFA should be decision makers of their own land, their own uh, uh, future and so on, is still there. Mm. Before me, 
he was ru running around in the bush trying to teach the Afar literacy because, in fact, they were colonised by French, right? And he was very angry with the French. He wanted Afar to language to be known, to be used and whatever. Mm. So he's running through the bush teaching Afar literacy. Um, and he's absolutely an Afar nationalist, that, that husband of mine. You're quite a petite person, Val. How does he compare to you height-wise? Well, I suppose he's got a head and a shoulder or something above me, but he's got a lot above me. <laughs> yes, he has. Uh, but uh, um, he's a very gentle person. Um, he might be big, but he's quite gentle and he's quite restrained, whereas I can flare up like a bombshell. <laughs> yes, so he's, what, he does better than I do. What did his family yeah. think about him marrying this this well, firecracker from Australia? Uh, his mother, who's now dead, uh, actually most of his family died and they died of what is um, symptomatic of the region. Now, most of them died of tuberculosis. His mother died some time ago, but I remember meeting her and she turned to me and she said, why, why, why did you marry this vagabond? A vagabond <laughs> is somebody who work, walks loosely on the street with no purpose and just enjoying himself. She said, whatever possessed you to marry this man? And I said, oh, you know, he's not too bad, your son. She said, ha, you'll see, you'll see, you'll see, she said. <laughs> she was a, yeah, she was a dear woman, his mother. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. So... Tell me about this home of yours, Val. What does it look like? Well, most of the Afar live in Ethiopia, but they live in three countries, in Eritrea, up to the Red Sea, over to the Indian Ocean, in Djibouti. Having said that, most of that land all over is what's described as semi-desert. Uh, ancient, maybe two million years ago, there was a huge amount of volcanic activity in the area, so a lot of it is ancient volcanic lava flows. There's still one active volcano called Ertali in the north of the Afar region in Ethiopia. There's trees, but they're between uh, the rocks. Uh, and it's... I, I find it beautiful. I do. And the, and the funny thing was, I have a lot of children in my house. He, my husband, he don't collect stamps, he doesn't collect coins, he collects people. So all my married life, I've had no less than 30 in the house. And so I've got a heap in my house. And anyway, uh, the school children were all complaining this year that they hadn't done anything exciting in the holidays. And this was because we're under conflict. This was because we're under crisis. Every day I'm running, running, running. And so I felt pretty guilty by the time the school was about to go back. And Ismail comes up with a great idea. He says, let's have a picnic. So he brings an old cracked-out mini, uh, minibus, loads 20 children in. He says, we're going for the picnic. 
So we go just outside Samara to a sand dune. And he said, now, children, the children, mind you, have showered themselves, put their best clothes on. They look terrific. And he says, right, racing up and down the sand dune. First up, down, I'll give you biscuits. OK. And he's playing his off our music. He's having a great time. He's in his element. He loves music. He loves fun. So he's, he's having a picnic with these children. And then we see this great big dust storm rolling in. And it's coming up. And I said, Ismail, I think we have to move. He said, oh, don't be so ridiculous. That's going to Logia. No, 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 it's not touching us. And I said, it's coming, Ismail. And anyway, he's going on. He's yelling at the children. Come on, come on. Who's not dancing? Wait a minute. Let's dance more. And, and then uh, the dust actually engulfed us. The children started screaming, running for the minibus. Nobody could see the minibus or find it. Um, eventually we got it. We couldn't get the door open. Oh, my goodness. He filmed the whole lot. He stood back and filmed the whole lot and enjoyed himself. Do you join in the dancing, Val? I like dancing, but I'm not good. But I love it. <laughs> so traditionally the Afa are nomads. They're pastoralists. How often are they on the move if they're living that lifestyle? Movement is a coping mechanism. They need water and pasture uh, to keep their animals alive. And they also need their ecologists. So they need to protect the land from destruction. So they won't stay in one place and they won't overgraze. They won't destroy the ability of the pasture to rejuvenate or the water should not become stagnant in their view. And so they move accordingly. Clan leaders order the movement. They design it. They say where to go and how to go. In some areas, they might have to go five to six times a year. In some areas on the western border where it rains more, they can stay permanently in, in a village. But it's n most of the Afar are moving. What animals are they herding? At the moment, mostly camels and goats. They love cattle, but as of 2005, 2006, a huge drought killed off their cattle. And I remember one man with literally a 1,000 cattle, too much. There is no really uh, access to market is very, very poor. And he now owns one cow. So, I mean, the number of cattle remaining is very, very small. Goats is the main thing. And camels also very, very important. But unfortunately, just now, we've lost again a lot of li livestock. One, due to a drought from 2020 ending in June 2021. Second reason is that the Tigray People's Liberation Front either confiscated animals or rounded them up and burnt them if they couldn't drive them into Tigray. So the mm. conflict is affecting that way of life. What about climate change? How is it impacting the pastoralists? Well, it's the impact is tremendous because, well, when I started there 33 years ago, Afar were drinking milk as if it was, you know, there was no end to it. I mean, a visitor would get three litres of milk as um, respect for the visitor, but now we, they can hardly find enough milk for the bottom of the teacup, let alone any to drink it and have a meal out of it. Uh, they were making yogurt. They were even uh, drying the curds of milk and making powdered milk. But now, no. So there would be five to seven months of the year where there's not milk in the house, and this has driven the nail of 
malnutrition into the people, which is very serious because we are raising children who are stunted, children who are not getting adequate protein or micronutrients to develop their bodies or their brains. Back when you moved to the area with Ismail in 1989, Val, how did you find yourself setting up an aid organisation, the APDA? Well, (laughs) funny question. They asked me to, and it was a group of clan leaders and uh, people who were leading then the fight to... uh, There was a Djibouti civil war at the time, and the, the leaders of the fighting movement asked me to set up this organisation. I said, no, no, I have no ability, I don't have any contacts. My husband turns to me in English and says, don't you say that, I've agreed. I said, well, don't be so ridiculous. I mean, what am I going to do? I don't know a soul. I married you in Djibouti, forget it. Anyway, we started with 34 voluntary people We lived for three going on four years on the money I had made as a midwife in Beltier Hospital in Djibouti, the main hospital. When the civil war broke out, my husband, he went to join the the front to see what could be done to, to save the lives of Afa. And so in this process, somehow some clever Afa while we left to go to join the the fighting and to try and keep people alive in the north of Djibouti, he got the money. Hmm. He did it. And so he fed us this money over three, four years, and we walked through the Afar bush inside Djibouti, inside Ethiopia, to bring them awareness to help them to see what could be a solution. And from those 34 people, after a process, one of the group died. He died, actually, of malnutrition. We thought we would disabandon. The clan leadership said, no way, you'll register. Here we are today. Um, We came from that small beginning with no administration, no building, jumping on the back of trucks to go to the north, living on nothing, to having uh, an administration in Samara, the capital of Afar region. We have quite a large compound. Uh, We staff ourselves, I think the staff is 866 people at the moment. They are trained women extension workers, trained teachers, trained health workers, all in the rural, all working in their own communities daily, plus the technical people in the office. And we've set up models so that the AFAR can actually get social service as nomadic people, continue their nomadicism, have mobile health, have mobile education. We work with women. We have a women's empowerment unit where we employ now 263 women who are all community women to work with women traumatised by this horrid war. We are part of the community, with the community, like no other... NGO I know. And in the end, this whole process is enabled, again, through clan leadership, through following traditional law. We're very, very different to another NGO. Mm. Um, one of the one of the most mm. confronting issues to hear about, and I imagine one of the most damaging for Afro women, is female genital mutilation. How common mm-hmm. is, is the practice in Afar region? 
When we started the organisation, AFAR were with no social uh, services, so they were not in contact with health, with education, with clean water or anything. So they were carrying on their traditions, ancient traditions, as they had for thousands of years, including female genital mutilation. And so when we started, universally, all women, all girls, were cut so that from their position, they were protected to be a virgin until they were married. They were protected against the abuse of men as far as the Afar were concerned. That's the reason for FGM. This is the traditional reason. And it's pre-Islamic, well and truly. And basically now uh, we started intervening into that with these community teachers, with these community women extension workers and health workers, all raising awareness, all talking about the danger of FGM and the danger to reproductive life, to the ability of the girl to have her own freedom, to be in, in a good relationship and so on. Now there are communities who've stopped it. There are. It's a process where the community stops it themselves. We cannot fool ourselves and say we are making changes. We are not. The community is changing when they feel they should. I wonder, Val, when you have uh, some of the, the difficult conversations with communities about issues such as that or, or other issues, the fact that you're a, a person of faith, do you think that helps? Well, I wouldn't stay there unless the whole process of the Afar, the whole process of the world, was that, was that in the hand of God. I mean, who am I? Can I determine anything? No. Uh, what's the purpose of me being here? Well, I'm just a cog in the wheel, a pair of legs, a pair of hands, and hopefully a bit of working brain. So in that respect, they know I'm Christian, I'm not Muslim. The Afar know that, they respect that. They are extraordinary respectful people, and they are very happy that I acknowledge God. And basically, in talking about any of these mm. sensitive issues... They're happy to listen and I have to put myself in a position where I'm not talking to them as a Western. We have to talk about it in their sense. What do they think? Where do they come from? So I've learned to do a lot of listening to them and allowing them to express themselves. Your mum came and visited you when she was 83. How did she fit into life in the desert? Well, my mother was absolutely the most remarkable person that I've ever met. Um, she, she came at 83, as I said. She came to explain the death of my father um, because she understood that I hadn't gone to Australia and I hadn't seen, I hadn't been at his funeral and I was having trouble reconciling that my father was dead. So she came uh, she asked the Afa, why are you doing this? Why are you learning? What do you hope for your future? She got herself utterly involved in the situation. And she did this up to her death. My mother had pancreatic cancer. Uh, my sister phone said, the doctor says she's got a week left. If you want to come, you've got to come here. So within that 24 hours, the Afa found me a ticket, got me to Addis Ababa. They pushed me on the Emirates flight and I arrived. 
And in those eight days I spent with my mother, one thing she said was, we Brownings do not appreciate that mothers die in childbirth. If what Valerie says, that this extraordinary number of Afar mothers are dying, having babies, then this Browning family has to do something about it. This was the beginning of the Barbara May Foundation that supports the hospital uh, through workplace giving, for example, in the hospitals of Sydney, and all sorts of means where the Barbara May Foundation raises funds. And so this extraordinary organisation was, in fact, the inspiration of my mother, and she was that sort of woman. She wanted people to, to benefit, to get, and she, she was my inspiration. She was my driving force in my thinking when she was alive, yes, most definitely. So did she accept the life that you made for yourself, Val, which must have been very different from the one she would have imagined for you back in Armadale? She used to say, she used to say to me, don't worry, dear, I'll talk to your father. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know how to boil him tea. I said, yes, you, you boil beautiful tea, mother. She said, I'll give him another cup. He'll understand. So you're not coming back, is that right? I'll talk to him, I'll talk to him, leave it. Leave it with me. And you've married him, have you? Oh, and she loved Ismail. And Ismail, uh, when he came and met my mother, uh, in Afar, he should call her Bali, which is the mother-in-law. He said, I don't call her my mother-in-law, I call her my mother. And he had a very special relationship with my mother. And he, Ismail didn't know his birth date. He didn't know when he was born. Lots of Afar don't. So my mother made him a birth date, which was the 27th of July, <laughs> 1954. That's his birthday. So every year she would send a shirt as a birthday gift. We could be sure that shirt would be coming. Every year he'd get a new shirt. It was lovely. Yes. You mentioned that your, your husband collects people rather than, than stamps or, or other artefacts that live with you in your compound. What are conditions like there in, in the place that you live? Do you have electricity? Do you have water? What's it like? We have electricity and water, but that's about it. But this is, you know what, this is our choice. I couldn't live with myself or go to bed at night and have a comfortable sleep if I was you know, putting myself into the lap of luxury and above anybody else. That, that's not the way to do it, I don't think. So I live as they do. But, yeah, I mean, life in Ethiopia, like it is in Australia now, is on a tight pinch. The world has got inflation. But we will go through it together. We can't, uh, we can't separate ourselves and make ourselves different and say, look, I've got to have this because I'm this. They know very well I am a different colour but they know now, after all these years, I work the I mean, my body works the same, so I don't need anything different. Do you think of yourself as living in poverty? Well, if I'm living in poverty, what is poverty? I want to ask you the question. What is poverty? Well, I, when you describe not sure if I've got enough food, is that poverty? No, 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 that's not poverty. Poverty is disempowerment. Disempowerment meaning I have no ability to get what I need or what I should get. That's what poverty is. It's not lack of medicine, it's not lack of food, it's not lack of clean water. It is not being able to get that. It could be political, could be social, could be 
historic could be any reason that's pushing you out, but you don't choose to die in childbirth. You don't choose to drink dirty water and die of diarrhea. You don't choose not to go to school and not to know how to sign your name and somebody cheat you. That's not, that's not your choice. This is what's happened to you because you, you didn't have choice. They are not in power politically, they're not in power economically or socially, and that's the problem. We are, I don't think the world is looking at poverty correctly. People do not want, they don't want to be given, 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 have some more food, have this. I'm sending you this. No, they want the ability to do it themselves. They want the ability to organise it themselves, have the say, make the decision and stand up and go. And that's what the, the whole thing should be. If we did it that way around, I tell you what, we get a more equal life, a more equal world. Is there such a thing as retirement in the, the world that you live in, Valerie? The word doesn't exist, no. So that's fine. I mean, I mean I'm 72, so 75 or 42, they're just numbers. The minute I, I can't cognate, the minute <laughs> I'm not part of the action in the proper way, I'll have to pull away. But I've been, I've been looked after, I've been respected in a society which isn't my own for all these years. And why should they do that to me? I don't know, but they do. So I see this as an extraordinary privilege, you know. I would love for anybody to come and visit. I'd love for anybody to come and enjoy some of what we have. We have a community life. We don't have depression, uh, although they have a very difficult life, very difficult. Everybody is together on problems. Yes, it's together. But here you've got competition, you've got stress, you've got goodness knows what you've got here. It's all cooked up together. But we're, we're having a fine time in that respect. Well, I wish you and Ismail and the whole group of people there with you many more years of joyful and meaningful activity. Thank you for sharing your story on, on Conversations. It's a real pleasure and I have the most privileged life of any Australian. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.